All right, let's pray, guys. We'll get started. Father, <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. Thank you uh, for the blessed Son, Jesus. Thank you for your beloved, Lord, that in him you have lavished us with every good thing, every spiritual blessing that comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow, no turning, no variation. Lord, we thank you that you are our constant Jehovah that you are our, our rock eternal, that you are our provider and healer, that you are the sustainer of our life and of our soul. And uh, Father, we're just so grateful to be uh, together again and to study your word, to look at what your word declares and to talk about the things that are uh, true in, and uh, the things that we need to be reminded of. And so Father, bless our, our, our time together. Bless our church. Father, we pray for our service that you would put your hand of blessing upon us. And uh, we just pray today that it would be a real, true means of grace to us. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, why don't we begin by going to uh, 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians. Or is that 2 Corinthians? Actually, no, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 because <clears throat> we are looking at the... Um, the doctrine of conversion, so that we are going to be talking about um, repentance and faith. There we go. Talking about, again, the order salutis, but today we're talking about uh, the doctrine of conversion. And wasn't using the term conversion in my notes as much, so I thought I'd throw that up there. Uh, you know, the Bible teaches very plainly that uh, there is one repentance that leads to salvation. And yet, <clears throat> if we're honest with ourselves, we see repentance all around us. How many of you have talked to folks who seem repentant of the things that they have done, uh, particularly with God? Uh, how many times have you talked to people that say, I have repented, I have, but you don't understand my life, and then the story gets longer and longer and why they're not walking the Christian life, right? And so that is because the Bible teaches that there are actually two kinds of repentance. So look, look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. <clears throat> there we find the Apostle Paul saying, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. And then it says, um, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see that? So there are two, there's a parallel there, and that is with the word sorrow. The godly have one form of sorrow, and the worldly have another, another form of sorrow. Uh, the worldly sorrow is that sorrow that produces regret. In other words, uh, it produces ultimately false conversion. It is exactly what Jesus taught about in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the sower, that there are those who seem to have saving faith, and in a very short while, after they spring up very quickly, and they show all kinds of external signs and manifestations of repentance, and then very quickly, they turn away. Why? Well, Jesus gives all sorts of reasons for that. Well, persecution comes. Why does persecution come? Not because the person has a weird personality, not because he's decided to associate with a certain group of people. More fundamentally, Jesus says, because of the word, right? So it shows that people have made a faith commitment to the word of God and have decided to live their lives according to God's word. And as a consequence, because of their newfound convictions, right, that leads to a transformed life, all of a sudden people around them begin to persecute them for their new life, their newfound convictions. Oh, you used to go partying with me. Oh, you used to be able to watch that. You used to be able to listen to that. What's wrong with you? What happened to you, right? Uh, what happened to the old you? I want the old you back, right? I don't like this new person that you've become with all these convictions and all these hangups, right? And a lot of people, because they're not genuinely converted, they cave under the pressure of that type of persecution. 
And of course, this can get to the extreme, right? To martyrdom. And uh, it's extreme for us, but I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but martyrdom is becoming an increasingly common reality, especially around the Middle East. People are losing their lives for the sake of their faith at a very, very rapid rate. As a matter of fact, our generation, 20th, 21st century, is poised to be the most persecuted nation, generation of all time on planet Earth. And so we had better understand what is the nature of true repentance? What is the nature of true saving faith? So that we understand what it is that we have become and what it is that Scripture calls us to do. So here, I want to give us the two sides of conversion. And first, let's begin by defining what is conversion. Okay, Grudem defines it like this. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel, to the gospel call, in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. That's a good, simple definition of conversion. Especially, uh, you see, maybe important for us is that idea there of our willing response to the gospel call. Remember, we studied the gospel call. So let me remind you now of the order of salvation, the order salutis. Remember this graph? Oh, look here. Ta-da. Does this work? Ooh, look at that. So does that, wait, it doesn't show up on the screen. Oh, forget it. Never mind. <laughs> we tried. It's, it's, I got it. Oh, it was? On the blue part, you can see it. On the blue part? Where? Oh, don't tell me this is one of those, like, you know, illusions. It's going to be in the, like the dress. You know what I'm going to figure out? Okay, so. Oh, wow. I, okay, raise your hand if you see it. Raise your hand if you don't see it. See? We're going to go viral. That's it. We're going viral. Let me get my video, video camera out. Okay. I'm, this is a good weapon. I like this. I'm keeping this. But you see there that effectual calling precedes repentance and faith. And we looked at the concept of the call, remember? We saw that there was the general call, right? General call, and there was also the effectual call, right? Effectual. So <clears throat> what was the difference between the general call and the effectual call? And when we say call, we are talking about the gospel, when God calls us through the gospel. The general call is also what we could call the universal, right? Universal call. It is also external, meaning everyone gets called. So this is the first part of the verse where Jesus says in, I think it's Matthew twenty-two fourteen. I think. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is. Jesus says, many are called. What is he referring to there? He's referring to the general call. Many are called, meaning the gospel goes out to the many. In other words, it is a non-exclusive, non-discriminatory call. It goes out to the general populace, the general masses, so that if you, Tony, are standing up on the box, were you on the box yesterday? There you go, see? Picked a good example. Denton, you're in Denton? So Tony's on the box in Denton, and he's preaching the gospel, and the general call of the gospel is going out to everyone undiscriminately. But we also know that there is the aspect of the effectual call of the gospel. So the effectual call means that this is God's powerful summons to actual salvation. It is not simply a summons to repent, it is actually a summons to salvation, where a person actually internally, not externally, and here we would say it is particular, right? It is particular. It is not universal. In other words, not everyone hears the effectual call of the gospel. Or that would result in what is, you know, strict, right? Universalism. Strict universalism, which means everyone gets saved. Is that possible according to the Bible? Sadly, no. Sadly, no. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, what? Narrow is the way and difficult is the road that leads to everlasting life, and few will be there that find it. Now, don't get confused. Jesus is not saying, us four, no more, close the door. 
what Jesus is saying is that in contrast to the great mass of humanity, the untold multitudes of billions of people who have ever lived or will live, uh, in consideration, the number of the elect is much smaller than the number of the non-elect. But the number of the elect, according to uh, Revelation, like, uh, for example, I think it's Revelation chapter 7, is in an innumerable number. In other words, when you get to heaven, don't expect just, you know, a bunch of Calvinists to be there. <laughs> right? Well, in a sense, they will all be Calvinists by then. But what I'm saying is that don't expect just one denomination, right? Just the Baptists are going to be there. Just the, just the Presbyterians, right? Uh, just the Pentecostals. No, it's going to be an innumerable number of God's saints from all generations going all the way back to Adam, all the way to us, and all the way to the future for who knows how long God is going to allow this world to go on. I don't know by the looks of it. I can't imagine that he would allow it to go on much longer, but we don't know. We don't know. But those who will be in part of that innumerable number in heaven are those who have heard the effectual call of the gospel. And so when Grudem says, when Grudem says, uh, Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call. That means the effectual call has taken place, and we have been quickened. Now, remember the chart? Effectual calling and regeneration, we said, they're so closely knit together, right, that the new birth follows right alongside of the effectual call so that, in essence, they're inseparable, right? A person who is effectually called is born again, is regenerate is quickened, is born of God, born anew, born from above, is made alive. Right? You were once dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and now you have been made alive, Ephesians 2, 5, with him, with Christ. And uh, that is all a result, again, of God effectually, powerfully calling us to salvation. That's what it results from. And now we're asking the question is, what happens after regeneration? After a person has been technically born again, made alive? Well, it leads to this great phenomenon of repentance and faith. So when we are asked the question, where does the willingness to repent come from? Right? Do people just wake up and put repentance and faith on their to-do list? on their shopping list, right? A little sticky tab. Repent and have faith in Jesus Christ today. <laughs> right? Of course not. It is a work of God altogether. And I don't know if you can resonate with this, but I certainly can. On the day of my conversion, I didn't wake up that day thinking, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to lose every friend I have today. <laughs> you know? I, my little black book, I was, real, I was real proud of it when I was in the world. I had a little black book full of 300 names of friends and people that I knew all over the place. And, you know, I was real proud of that. Well, overnight, Christ shattered all of that. That popularity was gone overnight because of my conversion and also because of the type of crowd I ran with. We were diametrically opposed to one another. So the willingness to repent comes from a prior activity of the Spirit of God in our hearts. In other words, he gives us the willingness to repent. He gives us the desire to, to repent and to believe in his name. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, just a quick example of this. There are so many, and this is not even my notes. I'm just, I get up here, sorry, I can't deny the fact. I start preaching and, you know, I go into sermon mode. But any questions, comments, or feedback, please make sure to raise your hand. Um, and just uh, ask any question you have, okay, at any point. But uh, first, uh, I'm sorry, Philippians, I wish there was a first Philippians and a second. That'd be great. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted, there it is, a gift, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, <clears throat> but also to suffer for his sake. So you see that? Faith is, is just an assumption on the part of Paul that faith is understood to be a gift. So repentance and faith are simply a gift of God, right? There's another one, and boy, I'm racking my brain. If anybody can think about it, Paul says, or it says in Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 11, where 
we are told that the Gentiles have also been given the gift of repentance. Anyone know where that is? Is it Acts 11, Chris? Thank you. Right. Um, 11.18? Thank you. Yes. 11.18, here Peter is recounting what's going on with the Gentiles, and he says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. You see that? So repentance comes as a divine gift of God. What is repentance? Genuine repentance. See the word there? <clears throat> the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia. Two compound words, right? It's meta, which we get like metamorphosis, something changes, right? And then naos is the Greek word for mind, right? Or nous, depends on, you know, the, the lexical entry. But uh, so change of mind. That's what the word repent means. But I tell you what, go around and ask people, what does repent mean? And almost, I would say, I would say 90% of the time I've had people tell me, well, repent means that's when you ask for forgiveness. Uh, repent means that uh, you confess to God what you've done wrong, right? You or you say you're sorry. Yeah. Or you feel like you're sorry, right? And in a sense, that is all true in the sense it accompanies repentance. But the root issue, the lexical definition of the term literally means a worldview change. You are completely changed. Your outlook on life, everything changes. Didn't, did everything change at your conversion? Do you have one of those kinds of conversions? Kim? Yes? Stephanie? Yes? Right? Everything changed. You went from darkness to light. You suddenly saw yourself in truth. Right? Um, I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. He's there in the pigsty, wallowing in his sin, and then the Bible says, he came to himself. Mm. What am I doing? Wallowing in the mud. Wallowing in the pigsty. I have a father's house that I could go to. What am I doing over here? He finally realized who he really was. Same thing happens to us. When we repent, we realize, what am I doing? I'm a child of God, right? I'm, I'm, God is my creator, he made me not for this, what I'm doing. He made me to know him. So you literally come to yourself. You come to your senses. It's just amazing, right? It's an epistemological issue. You have, a, you have a whole new worldview. Your knowledge of everything changes instantly. It's really radical. Um, repentance defined. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. A renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, would anybody add or take away anything from that definition? No? No? You guys can see that pretty good. Okay, good. I think it was a good definition by Grudem. There were other theologians who had much more extensive uh, definitions, and I thought this was good. This was simple. Maybe, yes, sir? Maybe you can just qualify, though, Right. And so what we learn from Scripture is that when he says that you walk in obedience to Christ, he is not calling for uh, perfect obedience, right? That you have a sinless life thereafter. But the, the, the life of obedience is a manner of life. It's a lifestyle. It's a walk of life. Uh, this is why John in his letter, 1 John, right? 1 John says, look, whoever makes a practice of sin is not born of God. So if you literally live in open rebellion to the word of God, if you live your whole life long in contradiction to your creed, it's good evidence that you're not saved. But this is calling for a habitual pattern of obedience to Christ so that no matter how many times you fall, you get back up and you obey and you get back on the road and you run the race, you forsake the sin that easily weighs you down, and then you run with endurance the race that is set before you. That's what, uh, that's, that's, that's what it's like. You know, that's what it's like. It's like a marathon, you know? Marathon runners, they're in it for the long haul, right? Uh, Christianity is not like a sprint, right? Ready, set, go, you know? That's not really what it is. It's, ready? <laughs> You're getting ready to go, and it's going to be a long, hard war, you know, fight. Uh, there's a hymn that says, you know, 
that caused Christianity war. For, for, for some, the road has been quick and easy. For me, it's been sore and long, right? Calvin said, all of the Christian life is what? A lifelong agonizing process because you have the hell of sin within and you're battling your old self to the day you die. You're battling your old self. You're having to put to death the things that remain earthly in you. Is that what you wanted to hear? Actually, that's good. <laughs> Not good enough. Man. Hey, Scott, you think you can grab me a bottle of water? Please, thank you. repentance is going to lead to conversion, like the obedience that you're walking out. I see. That obedience leads to conversion. Right, right, right. That's right. No. Uh, so that's why he says, you know, uh, you sincerely commit to forsake, forsake sin and walk in obedience. So no, obedience follows repentance. It follows conversion. It doesn't produce it. Is that what you're meaning? Yeah, like it's the commitment that you will walk, but it's not like by walking it leads to... It's the commitment that you will walk in obedience. It's not the condition right. that you walk in obedience so that you right. repent. Is there a verse for all this? I think repentance also, you bear fruit. You bear fruit of repentance. So it's not like you just walk. That's right. There's going to be a, a, a result. There's going to be like people can see a change and you're going to be bearing fruit of righteousness. When Correct. Repentance. Amen. So the verse I'm thinking about is Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Right, where there the Apostle Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. Right? That would be a works-based system of righteousness. We work, you know, like the Mormons, we pedal our bike in an effort to try to gain more and more holiness and acceptance with God. Or like the Catholics, we do penance and we do the various you know, sacraments and hope that we are being infused with more and more grace and hopefully at the end of the day we've done enough. Or like the Muslims who think that they keep the five principles of Islam, the five pillars, and hopefully at the end of the day they even they will tell you this, we hope the scales tip in our direction. Could there be anything more terrifying than that? Than walking your whole life not knowing if you've done enough. Have I done enough? At the end of my day, am I going to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. If it's based on you and your performance and say, man, did I do enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I pray enough? Did I study the Bible enough? Then certainly we should live in a state of spiritual paranoia. Right? But thank goodness it's not based on us. All right, let's get into what it is based on. But first, let me just introduce the fact that true repentance includes the whole human person. So the intellect, the emotions, the will, and actions, right? The intellect. We have a knowledge of sin and of salvation and of the consequences of sin and of the, con- and of, and of the reward of sal- or the uh, promise of salvation. Emotions. We learn to hate sin and love Christ. The will. There is a personal volitional decision that is involved in our repentance and in our faith, and our actions, we truly, truly turn. God doesn't do this on our behalf, but we are the ones who turn and obey. And yet, at the same time, God is the one who is working in us to will and to do. Right? Let, me, let me ask a quick question here. Is uh, repentance and faith, is conversion, is that, a, uh, is that a monergistic act or a synergistic act? Remember, monergism means... God only is act, active in that aspect of salvation. So if I could, uh, boy, I don't want to do this, but eh, I didn't go too far. So there, um, I give you the answer. Remember, all those issues were monergistic acts of God. Effectual calling is monergistic. Man is no human, is totally passive. Regeneration, being born again, man is totally passive. He does not contribute to the new birth. But what about repentance and faith? It is a synergistic act. There is both human and divine cooperation. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Yes, sir. I'd say it'd be good to remember that 
like when you get when you're on the screen with the will it is our decision our our that doesn't precede the regeneration it's the that's the fruit of our regeneration that's right and uh you know that's something that you know i've had to really wrestle with wrestle with uh -huh. um and it just seems like yeah it, repentance of faith being yes synergistic right. with the understanding that the re, that regeneration preceded it correct I would say the only way that it could be uh, uh, truly syner or synergistic is if regeneration was monergistic, Correct. right? Because God has to first act in us, quicken us, make us alive, so that we will be willing to repent. So prior to that, we're not willing. Forget about not being willing, we're not even able, right? right? Amelia, yes, ma'am. think about uh, Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's right. That's right. So again, there's the divine side. Verse 13 is just as crucial. Mm -hmm. And now he says, now he puts the stress on you. You work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's God working in you, and you have to work out your salvation. So this is why theologians say this is a synergistic aspect mm -hmm. of salvation. Mm -hmm. Very important. Any other questions? I saw some I, other I hands. Chiquita? Repentance and faith was monogistic because God gives us faith. Yes. Based on what you just said, you know. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, and that is uh, and that is also a careful balance that we have to have. We have to have. We don't want to be ultra monogistic because we don't want to assign or we don't want to invert the teaching of Scripture. Let's say just because we're Calvinist, we have no place for human involvement. Right? That would be inaccurate as well. So uh, the Reformed faith has always had a commitment to the synergistic nature of, of, uh, of repentance and faith. In other words, God is not the one believing for you. You actually believe. Okay? Yeah? I would say that contributes to our, you know, the historic Reformed uh, view of preaching the gospel. You know, at the start of the missionary movement is that understanding that it is it, it is our you know our choice in the sense of you know with the synergism the synergism of repentance of faith and we proclaim the gospel praying yes. that God regenerates so that they will repent and believe right um, I think that would be at the I see that as kind of the root of our evangelism yeah amen amen that's good those are all good points. Um, so repentance and faith is a single and simultaneous action. Turn to uh, Acts chapter 20, or you could just read it there. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20 gives us kind of the two sides of the one coin of conversion, right? Uh, there it says that Paul was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of two things, of repentance towards God, number one, and separated by Kai, Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you see that really in reality, what he was preaching was the necessity for both of these things to go together. You can't have repentance without faith. You can't have faith without repentance. Genuine faith, saving faith, which is what we're going to talk about next. So this is why I want to drill down a little deeper on the issue of the components of saving faith. Remember this from last, last time we, we talked about this? Remember I threw out these words at you? Notitia, ascensus, fiducia, right? Referring to the Latin theological terms that refer to cognition, conviction, and confidence. So what I want to do is kind of go into this and show you that the Bible does present these three components of genuine saving faith and that it is not even simply a theological deduction it is even a grammatical issue in the Bible. There are grammatical constructions, in other words, that show us that this is the way the Bible uses this aspect of faith. It's very that's fascinating. Uh, so, for example, let's begin with notitia. When we're talking about notitia, we're talking about cognition. We're talking about knowledge. Genuine, saving faith... Uh, contrary to what many people teach today, is not blind faith. You just believed it just because, right? No, no, no. If it's genuine saving faith, it has to have 
knowledge of the truth and of the facts of the gospel. Okay? And where do you see this? You see this in places like Romans 10, 17, right? Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So, in other words, true, genuine, true saving faith comes by the things that you hear. And here, what he's saying there is that the things that you are intellectually understanding and being exposed to, those things lead to true, genuine, saving faith. So the cognition of man is involved. It's not passive. It's not as if God puts your brain on pause and then imparts saving faith to you, and then you come to understand that you have saving faith later. No, 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 no. No, you have to use your mental faculty. You have to understand the truth of the gospel, the facts of the gospel. Um, so, for example, now let me show you. These are just some of the verses here that speak to this. Now, let me, let me talk a little bit more technically here. Some of you are like, well, I'm more technical than that, huh? It's not hard because the phrase that we have to zero in on, the, the phrase that Scripture uses is this. Believe that. Believe that. So somebody want to turn to Hebrews 11? Hebrews 11, who's quick enough to, who's, who's going to be there first? Uh, Scott, go ahead. Hebrews 11, verse 6, please. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Yeah, and you read that, that word that really quickly, right? You need to kind of almost preach it for me. <laughs> right? it, those that come to God must believe that he is, right? So that is saying, that is the construction that is saying that we're believing in certain facts about God, okay? We're believing in certain facts, factual evidence, factual truth, theological truth, um, the facts of the gospel. John eight twenty four. Who who wants to read that for us? Now that you all were racing to Hebrews, now making you race to John, right? John 8.24, go ahead, Jonathan. Maybe I'll just pick on people. Jonathan, and then, uh, Ozzy, you want to do uh, John 11.42? 11.42, go ahead, Jonathan. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe the truth that Jesus is the divine I am, unless you believe that Jesus is God incarnate, unless you believe that he is who he claims to be, you will die in your sin. You see that? Ozzy? I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. That, you, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, what's Jesus saying? They need to believe the truth that Jesus is actually sent from the Father, that his origins are actually from the Father, that his mission is actually divine in origin, right? They must agree with this intellectually. Now next, that's notitia. Any question on notitia? Anybody? Or cognition? Yes, sir. Would that kind of fall in the line of if there's a a specific important area of our theology that is off, like, say, belief in the Trinity or not, does that fall under cognition in the negative sense? Like, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you don't have a right cognition, even if you say you believe in Jesus. Well, yes. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, Notitia is talking about saving faith in the essential, what is essential for salvation. It's not calling for omniscience, that you need to know everything, Right but that you, know, you need to know the components of the gospel. So you have, the right, you have to have the right God. You believe in the wrong God, that doesn't lead to salvation. So it's almost like we have to determine, like, what's the essentials of the Christian faith? Have you ever pondered that? You think you know them, memorize them, can articulate, and can defend them, right? That's very important. What is the bare minimum of what we must believe to be Christian? We live in a culture right now, a whole culture that's telling us, hey, look, I can be in the, you know, living the homosexual lifestyle and be a Christian. Right? Can they? No. No, that's right. And the reason why is because of the nature of salvation. Right? Salvation. So I would say the essentials of the Christian faith could be categorized, categorized under three headings, God, revelation, and redemption. If you get God wrong, whether it's 
deity of Christ, the Trinity, whether it's any of those issues, right, you can't possibly have salvation in the wrong God. Same thing with um, Revelation. If you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, then you don't have Christianity, you have something else, right? You can't possibly believe that the word of God is going to benefit you if you don't believe that it's true, if you don't believe it is the word of God, right? What about redemption? If you believe that salvation is by works, right? We, that's, a, that's kind of a common one, right? If you believe salvation is by works, then obviously that is a what? That is a false gospel, right? That's why we believe that there's a difference between um, Protestants and Catholics, right? I do not believe Catholicism has the gospel. That's what the whole Reformation is about, is that the, the Catholic Church has so gone astray. They had so perverted the gospel that it turned the gospel into a works system of righteousness where you earn the righteousness of God. That is patently the false gospel. Um, in the same way, an antinomian gospel is not the gospel. Right? That's not true salvation. To live in open rebellion to the will and the word of God is not salvation. So if you say, you know, forget homosexuality, you know, I'm going to live in, you know, I'm going to be a thief my whole life. And God doesn't care about stealing. No big deal, right? Again, that's not the gospel. That's antinomianism. That's saying that God approves of lawlessness. So not to get too sidetracked, but I think that's important for us to ponder the essentials of the Christian faith. Um, <clears throat> I know many of you are probably thinking, well, there's a lot of other stuff. <laughs> but remember, these are headings. God, uh, re revelation, and redemption. I would say all of the essentials of Christianity fall beneath those three heads. Okay? So next, not only do you have to have, you remember, not only do you have to have... <clears throat> Let's wait for technology to catch up again. Okay. Not only do you have to have notitia, you also have to have a census. Do you remember what a census was all about? A census. It's the, it's the Latin word for something. Do you remember? Even kind of sounds like the word a census. A what, Trish? A census. Okay. Yeah, don't be bashful. Say it. Preach it, sister. Well, don't preach, but you know what I mean. Assent to what? The facts of the gospel. Very good. So you have to agree with the facts of the gospel. It's not enough to know them, right? You know, I was working uh, construction many, many years ago, and I was in an older gentleman's home. It was the weirdest thing. And I'm up on a ladder, and I'm fixing a hole in his roof. And he's talking to me. Well, when I walked in, I saw all of these theological books. And you know, I got all excited about that. So I was like, wow, what's this guy? So, you know, I was trying to play, you know, I was trying to play it cool, you know, I wasn't trying to be too overt, you know. Well, sure enough, you know, we finally got to talking, you know, and this guy ended up being a neo-orthodox. Do you know what neo-orthodoxy is? Neo-orthodoxy, you remember I talked about this uh, a while ago, but neo-orthodoxy is uh, following the tradition of Karl Barth. And, and sure enough, who's your favorite theologian? Karl Barth. Karl Barth is the early 20th century scholar who came up, you know, a champion of miracles. So one thing that neo-orthodoxy did that was good is that neo-orthodoxy recovered from all the liberalism of the 19th century the issue of the supernatural and miracles. They said, no, 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 the, the anti-supernaturalism of the 18th and 19th century is wrong, you know? this anti-supernatural worldview. And where do you think that anti-supernatural worldview came from? Darwinism. That's right, evolution. It was the dawning of the evolutionary age. And then the German liberals took that and said, well, everything can be explained scientifically. We have no need for supernatural events. Therefore, supernatural things are impossible. Karl Barth refuted that on the basis of Scripture, ironically enough, on the basis of Scripture. And he defended the tenacity of miracles. But one thing that came with Karl Barth is a denial of the divine inspiration of the Bible. He did not believe that we have access to an inspired Bible. The only thing that we have in Christianity is a personal 
experience with the Holy Spirit, where the Word becomes the Word of God to you. It, anytime you hear somebody say the, word, the Bible becomes the Word of God, eh, 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 right? Red flags. The Bible does not become the Word of God. <laughs> it is the Word of God, but that is exactly what Karl Barth denied. He denied that the Bible was objectively the Word of God. It became the Word of God to you once you had a personal, personal, intimate experience with it. See how deceptive that is? So what you had in the end was the heresy. Um, yeah? How could he argue for the truth of it if he didn't believe in the truth of it? Exactly. It's, all liberalism is is a mental disorder. <laughs> it's true. You know what I mean? It really is true. I mean... <laughs> we ended up disagreeing very strongly on the nature of scripture and we got into it i told him i said i said sir you know that's heresy right it's like and he sat there on his couch just looking at me like well young man right and he just said i know what you i know that you would say that you know you know i preached the gospel to him i actually called him to repentance to leave bart behind and embrace you know Real theology, the true the scripture's view of scripture, you know. Anyway, um, so uh, we go from noticia to a census. We have to agree. There we go. No, I knew it was going to do that. I'm catching up to this computer now. I'm, I'm learning its ways. Here we go. A census has to be part of true saving faith. So not only knowing the facts, but agreeing with the facts. Assent refers to the intellectual or cognitive conviction that the knowledge one has acquired about Christ is indeed factually true and that the provisions of the gospel of Christ correspond, watch this, exactly to one's actual spiritual needs. I like that Robert Raymond made this qualification, not necessarily to felt needs, right? A whole... A whole industry has been built around the felt needs of people. That the gospel will accommodate your felt needs. Come to church, say the sinner's prayer, and what happens? Your life will get better, you'll have a better marriage, you'll have a better family, right? It answers those types of felt needs, but they are oblivious to the real needs that they have, which is the fact that they're alienated from God. The fact that they need reconciliation, restoration with Almighty God. Those are their actual spiritual needs. And so this is what man has to agree to. The actual gospel as it is presented. So, here we have examples where the gospels um, are doing this, okay? Can some of us just quickly read some of these, okay? Um, let's see, Miriam, you want to do the first one, 2125? Mm -hmm. Matthew 2125. Chiquita, you want to do one? Mark 1131. Okay, Trish, Luke 20, verse 2. Okay, that's good. Because the Gospels are going to give us a pattern here. Okay, you got that? Mm -hmm. okay. okay. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? Why did you not believe him? What is Jesus talking about there? Was Jesus saying, why did you not put personal trust in me for salvation? No. That's not, that's not really the aspect he's hitting on. There, he's hitting on the fact that, why didn't you agree with me? Right? Because Jesus is arguing very perceptively here, and he's pitting them in a corner. What you make of the baptism of John, the Pharisees are stuck. If it's not legitimate, right, then the people will rise up against him because they regarded him as a prophet. If he says it was legitimate, then he's going to say, well, then why don't you agree with me, right? That it is of God. So he's looking for, he's, he's, there is a, an example of assent. Okay, what's the next one? Um, Luke 20, verse 2. Okay, you preempted Trish, but go ahead. Oh, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 I don't want to. Okay. Um, I'm not, I don't want to hinder your zeal. Go for it. <laughs> no, I thought she read by the Luke 20, verse 2. Go ahead. Okay. Um, Luke 20, verse 2. 
Luke 22, and this is uh, King James. It's okay. Uh, and I spake unto him, saying, Tell us by what authority doest thou these, these things? Or who is he that gave this authority? Is that, that's, that's uh, Luke 20, verse 2? Yeah. Let me see here. I, maybe I gave too much grace to the King James. Let me see. Verse 20. And tell me by authority. Uh, I'm sorry. I led you astray. Um, I will ask a question of baptism. It's the same thing. It's actually from verse 2 to verse 5. Verse 5 is a parallel where, again, he's asking about the baptism of John, and he says, why did you not believe him? So this time Jesus said, why didn't you believe in John? Why didn't you agree with John? Okay, now Trish, Mark eleven thirty one. That's right. Why did you not believe him? Why didn't you agree with John the Baptist and with Jesus and their message? They didn't agree with the message. So the Gospels reveal a grammatical construction, and it is this. Pistuo, believe, with a certain object, okay? And the certain object is a word in a certain case, which is in this term, the dative case, the date of case endings just mean, well, what kind of word is it? Is it a, uh, like, for example, the nominative case is the case of what? Jonathan, do you remember from Greek? The it's the subject. What is the date of case? It's a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> What's the accusative case, Chris? Direct object. Direct object. What's the date of case? Prepositional? Nope. The dative case is the indirect object, right? So Susan threw the ball to Tom. Tom is the indirect object. The ball is a direct object that she threw, okay? So that is the construction of the Greek. It's fascinating because to me, you have this evidence in the Bible. And all you have to find is pistuo plus a dative. Why didn't you believe him, auto, in the dative? That means that what the authors are calling for is agreement with the facts. Isn't that fascinating? It is to me. I mean, this is stuff that keeps me up all night. I want another pot of coffee when I read something <laughs> like this. <laughs> Let me give you one big example. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thess 2, this is good because it gives us a negative and a positive example of a census. Right? of a census. <clears throat> uh, Felix, you want to read that for us? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who do not believe the truth but took pleasure in that's right. So they believe what is false, meaning they agree intellectually, align with it, and they also do not believe the truth, that which would save them. You see that? That really is the option that man has. Last one before I run out of time. Fiducia. This is a big one. Watch this. This, this, this uh, quote here from, from uh, really from Gordon Clark, but it's quoted by... Robert Raymond in his systematic theology. He says, as assent is cognition passed into conviction, so fiducia is conviction passed into confidence. So it's beyond just, I agree. There's a lot of people that agree. How many people have you talked to in your family, your friends, your coworkers? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, yeah, I'm very religious. I respect the man upstairs, right? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those, those Muslims are wrong. Right? You have people agree with you all the time, all day long. But do they have confidence? Do they have, in other words, trust? The word fiducia means trust. Do you fall on the things that you say that you believe? Right? This is a big one. Um, 
the importance of fiducia. Again, Robert Raymond says, it is essential that faith include this third element. Otherwise, one's faith is intellectual faith. Excuse me, the intellectual faith of demons who believe that God is one, James chapter 2, verse 19, and who believe that Jesus is both the Son of God and their judge, but who, because they have no cognitive affection for Christ, to the contrary, they are cognitively, they cognitively hate him and they refuse to trust him. So this is what separates us from just nominal faith, from surface level faith, from demonic faith. No question the demons believe in God. Oh boy, they, they believe in God, sadly, most, than most professing believers, right? They know that there's a God, right? What did they tell Jesus? Are you here to torment us before the time, son of God? Right? So they have no question. And so confidence is very, very important. There are four different constructions to fiducia. They're very, very big. Next week, I want to look at all four of these because it's, it's too much. And, uh, but, but basically, you know, what it, what it instructs us is this, is that when we're, ta- we're dealing with people who seem to have a knowledge of Jesus, they seem to agree with Jesus then we, we always have to ask ourselves, okay how, do, okay, how do I get around this? Because they seem to know about him. They seem to even agree with it. But we know something is wrong. So we ask the question, do they trust it? And how do you know that they're trusting it? Let me ask you guys that question. How do you know, Amanda, that someone is trusting in the facts of the gospel? Amen. Amen. Obedience, the proof is in the pudding, right? You say you believe in all this, but do you live it? Right? So let's go to worship. On that note, <laughs> on that note, let's go to worship. We're out of time.